of the eleven that stood up when Peter preached his great message on the day of Pentecost. Now let's examine this scripture a little closely. Contrary to common belief in what appears on the surface, not three, but only one person is indicated in this passage. Just one. Let's search it out. This is evident when we see his command to be baptized. After all, it is in only one name. It is said to be in the name, one name, of the Father, and the name, one name, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Singular. Singular. Meaning one. Therefore, this baptism was to be in a name which could be applied alike to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where then in the Bible can we find any scripture that tells us that all-inclusive name? That's what we're looking for now. An all-inclusive name. Because we're told to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's only one singular name. So we've got to find a name, all-inclusive, that every one of them could be called back. If we do that, perhaps we've solved the problem. What is the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Again, we refer to you a great scripture, Isaiah 96, which reads, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now notice, four names for the same person, Jesus. Four names given here for the same person, Jesus. We found, I believe, what we're looking for, an all-inclusive name for the Mighty God, for the everlasting Father, for the Counselor, and for the one to be born whose name was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then in the New Testament, said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Hallelujah. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. The child born, this son given, surely was Jesus. I don't see how we can deny this in view of the scripture. The child born also was to be called Wonderful Counselor. Now what does Counselor mean? I think it's evident in the Bible that Counselor means Holy Spirit. Jesus made this plain when he said the Counselor, which is in sense the Comforter, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. You'll find this in John 14 and 26. So we see Jesus was the name of the Holy Spirit, the Wonderful Counselor. Now what was the name of the Father? Father's not a name. If I could ask for our Father to step up here, and I would want the Brother Ray to step up here, and I'd say, Father, come on, I don't know how many fathers out here. There's a group of fathers. I could mean any of them. So it's not a name. It's only a title. If I wanted him, I'd call his name. But Brother Ray, I want you. This distinguishes him as to which father that I'm wanting. Father's not a name. Jesus is also the name of the Father. For the child born and the son given Jesus was to be called mighty God and the everlasting Father. Now isn't that scriptural record? To be called mighty God and everlasting Father. So Jesus was the name of the Father, it was the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, therefore, is that all-inclusive name. In giving his command to preach to all nations, Jesus clearly refers to himself alone, one person, when he said, in giving the command of all the authority of heaven and on earth has been given to me. Where then would be any separate Father or Holy Spirit invested with authority? If all authority, all power has been given to Jesus, what happens to the, to the Holy Spirit and to the Father, who all, also are supposed to be co-equal and almighty themselves? What happens to them? 
They have to cease to exist if in fact they ever were. It is then, it is then clear that Jesus' name was the all-inclusive name that carried all authority. Therefore, to be baptized in Jesus' name, were to be baptized, were to be baptized in the name that covered every name and the authority of all other names. Surely the apostles understood that Jesus expected them to baptize in the name of only one, so that they baptized only in the name of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on earth, his disciples baptized, they were given the command to baptize, even afterwards. Would we suppose that as soon as he died, the way of baptism was to be changed contrary to his commandments? In Matthew 28, 19, surely not. Now let's look at the instance of Acts 2, 38. That baptism was to be in the name of Jesus only is made clear by Jesus' command on the day of Pentecost. In reality, who preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost? I think the common answer would be Peter preached the sermon. But did Peter actually preach the sermon? Was he not endued with the power of the Holy Spirit? And that was not proven without a shadow of a doubt that our Holy Spirit was Jesus himself? So who then in reality preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost? Jesus himself. Preach that in the power of the Spirit. Certainly it had to be Jesus. Having baptized Peter with the Holy Spirit, spoke that day through Peter's lips. In that case, then, who gave the command on the day of Pentecost to be followed by all believers if Jesus did not? By this time, it seems that Jesus, who gave this command, never to be changed by the church when he said, Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38. There would not be true con two contrary commands given by the same commander. Now, would the same commander would not give two commands contrary to one another? Since this would not be, since this would be a contradiction, the apostle knew only one name under which to baptize believers: the name of Jesus Christ. They surely understood the command given in Matthew 28, 19 would be satisfied by baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ. This would be to obey the one command by the one commander, though the two commands were worded differently. That's all that it amounts to. There's no contradiction in it whatsoever. The one that spoke or moved upon to write, and uh, also the one that spoke on the day of Pentecost. The same commander with the same command, just worded it differently. Now here's some facts that started me. And even after all the research, I went across this, and uh, after all this, and even writing it down, and I thought, well, what to do? And I thought, well, I'll just give it out, and we'll let you live with it. Even with all of this, there seems to be evidence supplied by one of the greatest historians, Bible scholars of time, a man called E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S, Eusebius. Also another one, Macedonius, and another one spelled A-P-H-R-A-T-E, and then of course there's Tony Bear, and of course there's Smith Dictionary of Christian Antiquities, there's Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, and Encyclopedia Botanica, Botanica, the 11th edition, volume 3, page 389, all seem to point and stipulate that this scripture itself was added about the 4th century. These men, in searching it out, say that in any of the manuscripts before the 4th century, it was only found going into all the world and preached the 
teacher baptizing them in the name of Jesus. It didn't last straight now. I'm sure they wasn't wondering. I don't know what they were or anything. But this is their conclusion. This is what they say. But we have taken the two basic. There's others. And I'm sure we can deal with them. But we have taken the two basic scriptures that Trinitarians lean upon and base their doctrine upon and have shown that there is ever been a possibility. We know that this one is very evident on this. Evidently laid over challenge for a minute that it's of no value to them. They don't even try to use it anymore. And it's getting stronger evidence every day that both these scriptures were supplied to the translators in an effort to prove the Trinity God. I would say this, when man goes to the supreme effort of distorting and changing scriptures in order to embrace their own particular doctrine, I think the Bible has words for such people, and I don't believe they can escape. Because many minds have been confused because of blind leaders of the blind. Because of people accepting the traditions of humanity, and people following after them and having confidence in the basic knowledge of humanity. This is a mistake. I don't ask you, and I beg of you, not to believe one word I say until you take it and trace it out to your best ability. And then I do challenge you that if what I say is the truth, and your life is buried one way or the other, you better get it basically on what the Bible says, because it's going to be a great consequence to you in the closing hours of this dispensation of time. I would say that if you have been submerged in a Trinity method of in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, when we have made every effort and these people that have searched out and shown that possibly this was false and should not be, and we have shown that even should it be that it was only one name, you have been submerged and baptized in the titles, then I suggest you search what the Word of God says, really be concerned about your own life, and begin to think about being baptized according to the Bible. I'm not saying this to belittle you, not saying this to bring confusion to you, but I'm saying this because I love you. I'm saying this because we're nearing the end of time. I'm saying this is because every basic knowledge that a man can get of God brings us closer to him, and the closer we get to him, the more perfect we are, and the more perfect we are, the more we have a chance to withstand the powers of Satan in the life stage. And this would be a challenge to us. And because of traditions of man and people steeped in these traditions, man follows them all. Here we are. It doesn't seem to matter. You can talk to people, and people will say, well, Grandma and Grandpa believe this, and I always went to this church. It doesn't really matter. I don't get what church you go to, but what it really matters is whether you yourself have adhered to the commandments of God. Now, when the commandments of God cease to be in any value whatsoever, any of them, then I say it's time that you and I would close up the Bible and not even claim to be anything whatsoever. If it really doesn't matter what we believe or how we believe, then I say we're in trouble. I think the Bible says we're in trouble. I think we ought to make every supreme effort to find out whether we're, you say, well, I, I can't. Sure you can. There's ways of doing it. And it's open to every individual. You can search your Bible. I think there's enough in there. After we give you what we feel like and complete understanding, there's enough in there, I think, to assure you that there would be only God Almighty in the office of Fathers, in the office of Son, in the office of the Holy Ghost. Next week, we're going to pray right now, but next week we want to conclude the Trinity doctrine.
how can possibly take on it uh, all next Wednesday night to conclude and answer some more of their claims in their creeds. I'm taking it from what they said, not what I feel like they said, but these are actual excerpts from what they themselves said in their own creeds. It, it's written in there. And I'm taking it from this and we want to answer them, such as the co-equal statements, how could they be co-equal and one be less than the other when they claim that they're not, and uh, many, many, many more. The actions of them, we want to cover just about every facet of that. And they claim that they're everyone almighty, and yet there's so many places in the scripture where if this be the case that the almighty son prays to the almighty father, now why would one almighty want to pray to another almighty? It's just a little bit past my human imagination, I don't understand it. But yet if they are all almighty, as these priests say they are, well then there's confusion in the Bible. Jesus is contradicting himself from every place. And many, many different questions in the creed that we want to point out to you. Possibly the eternal, eternality of them, all of them are supposed to be eternal, but yet you can find the beginning and an end for at least one of them, and uh, the mention of them. And we want to take their creeds little by little and show you according to the Word of God how that it couldn't possibly be. And then after we finish the Trinity Doctrine, we want to begin upon this hated doctrine of so-called oneness. We try to point out to you that this has been the doctrine ever since the church was established and even before. And proofs and statements from the Bible was definitely proved, not on the surface, but in the depth, definitely proved that God in essence has always been one. Never any more than that, and never will be. Only one. So when we pray, we pray to Jesus, we pray in his name, by the devil to do everything, in word or deed, in the name of Jesus. And it fascinates me then how people continue, even after the word of God declares that whatever you do, this in itself should be enough, whatever you do, to do in the name of Jesus. And yet they can persist and consensually doing things in title. It's amazing. Astounding. When you really dig in the Trinity doctrine, it's really far more confusing than just to believe in one. So I was saying.
we would particularly desire because this message or this type of expounding it is a little duller than the average one. And except the mind is alert and the mind is really concerned, it can get dull and it can get bored, which I have seen on the basis of uh, some for the last two or three nights that this is exactly what happened. However, we want to try to reach the most with the best. And we want to establish you in what we feel like is the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be studying in short, searching out some of the creeds that certain individual churches have. And the first start, they first they start off tonight with the two primary different type doctrines that are in the world. First, there's a doctrine called the Trinity Doctrine. One that believes that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three separate and distinct persons in the Godhead. And they form the Godhead. We'll explain in just a few minutes some of the things that we have gotten from the creeds of different churches. We didn't make it up. We went out and got it from different churches and saw what their creed had inserted there. And this is the popular belief. But because something is popular, it doesn't make it right. I think the popular way of the world is sin, but that doesn't make it right. So I think it would behoove us to watch and search what we're really trying to believe. Also, the other one is to believe that there is only one God, and that He manifests Himself as Father. He manifests Himself, the one God, His Son. He manifests Himself in this day and hour as the Holy Ghost. But these are not three separate distinct persons who constitute the so-called Godhead. But this is just one Jehovah God, Yahweh of Israel of old. And any attempt to make him any more than that, we feel, according to biblical and historical study, is erroneous. Now we studied concerning some of the creeds of the Trinity churches, different ones. Now, if you want what we have a little bit later on, we'll be glad to share them with you. But we want to just make it in short, the Trinity doctrine taught throughout the Christian churches is as follows. This is taken from their creeds. Number one, the Godhead consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is just a review. There are three separate and distinct persons. Number two is what we say. Number three is these three are one in substance. Number four, the three are equal in power. Number five, all are eternal, all are uncreated. Number seven, none is before or after the other. Number eight, none is greater or less than another. Number nine, each of these three is almighty. Number ten, each one separately is God. Number eleven, the three separate gods constitute and make one God. Now this is primarily what's in the creeds of the churches. Now, if it's in a creed, if it is in the creed of a church, then the members, every member of that church that alienates themselves with that church is actually saying that they support this, that this is their belief, that they go along with it. They would try to expand it. I realize a lot of people are saying and doing this in ignorance and in talking to quite a few people that have embraced and perhaps still do the Trinity doctrine, many of them say, well, I don't, I don't really believe it in this manner. Now, the question really that constitutes today, the question really is not how we believe it. The question is, how confused are we on it? Because you would have to say this, you are represented by 
by elders. Regardless of whatever church you go into, you are represented by elders. These elders, in fact, then turn over what their creeds are for the United States government. It is known not only in the United States, but it's known the world over. And you swear allegiance to this creed. So therefore, you're not marked by what you think or what you don't think. You are marked by your membership in this individual church that you have sworn to uphold the creed, creed called the Trinity. Amen. So you see, it does make a difference whether you understand or whether you don't. If your name is signed, and many of them have church books, your name is signed on the dotted line, then you're actually saying, I embrace the creed of this church. And the creeds of almost all Trinity churches, we haven't been able to get a hold of all of them, but we have been able to just stand around and get a hold of several of them, and this is in essence what every one of them said. And uh, this is in essence, if you happen to be a member of one of them, this is in essence what you are saying that you will adhere to. Now right now it really doesn't matter too much, but later on when the powers of the beast begin to rise, and certainly that's in the very near future, it's already working, and we're not going to be 900 and some odd different denominations to thought, but there's only going to be two. It's going to matter much what you have sworn your allegiance to. Whether you're true ignorance or written your name upon the dotted line and said true ignorance and I support this creed or whether not, you're going to be marked as one of them. And being in confusion and not knowing exactly what you believe, you'll be fair prey for a false church upon its arrival and it's working fast. And that's why I say, whatever belief we uphold, that's certain out enough that we can be able to understand it on our own, and then not only be able to understand it, but let's try to get it down close enough to us and high enough in our hearts so when opportunities present themselves that we will be able to scholarly present this belief unto those who we feel are blinded. Because if you love your neighbor, you're not, wanting, you're not going to want him to continue in false doctrine, and you're not going to want him to be marked as and with the false church. So it would be who each and every one of us that embrace the truth, and we would begin to dig in and get settled and solid in the truth ourselves. For not for argument's sake, but for soul's sake, we might be able to present our platform pure and simple and unmovable. This is necessary. And it can be done biblically and historically. This is a good thing about it. You don't have to take just exactly what my interpretation of the Bible says. You have every convenience or can avail yourself of every convenience of historical books, church books, church history, church, church facts, written by people that actually I don't suppose could care whether you were crazy or whether you were one. They only record the facts as the facts are. And we have been able to search out concerning, first of all, the Trinity doctrine. We examined last week the two scriptures that the Trinitarians hold close to and build their case on. At least they did up until the late. We first explored 1 John 5 and 7, and we found in history, not my idea or not my opinion, but we find in history, we find it now, that there's been so much proof presented that Trinitarians themselves strike this out. History records that this particular scripture in 1 John 5 and 7, if I'm not mistaken, was inserted in the Holy Scriptures in the 10th century. And any farther back than that, the writing 
not minister the scripture. We also covered a nice Trinitarian scripture in Matthew 28 19, where they get the formula for baptism, and where the majority of the uh, present day Christians are immersed in those titles. And after much exploration of that scripture and searching into ourselves and pretending the facts as we saw them, we run across something that really started us in a sense. And even after writing this down, we run across the writings of a real old individual, the two of us, and then he by a cone bear picked up his leaders of that day. Leaders who were blind leaders of the blind, and so it seemed. Had no concept whatsoever in 325 A.D. concerning the great revelations the Apostle Paul tried to minister and tie this chapter church at home. So after much heated controversy, it was finally decided that the Trinity doctrine should be the accepted belief. It was decided, now listen, at 325 A.D. Before this, Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition, I'll have to pay quite in just a minute, swears to this as many others. Before this, there was no such thing as the Trinity doctrine in the churches of the world. Only this man, who was an influential man, a strong man, and he was able through his intellectual wisdom and the complacency of the present nature, he was able to push this through. He you heard the ram ramrodding bill through Congress. This is exactly what this man with his followers did. Ramrodded this through. And it was accepted as the state religion and the state belief. And that belief, it was the only, but that belief, clarifying that, is only, that there was only one Godhead should be rejected. Not only did they decide that they would accept the Trinity doctrine, but they decided that they would reject the other one which held fast to only one in the Godhead. And from that time on, only the Trinity doctrine was allowed. Those who did not accept this were to be considered heretics and punished accordingly. Now you don't have to go very far to see the punishment of those who dare to go against the emperor and who dare to go against the church leader. It was they who suffered drastically all down to the Dark Ages. It was they who refused to let any type of doctrine separate them from the Jehovah God of Israel, that they knew to be only one God. Before he said in himself, Behold, the Lord your God is one God. And they fought it, and they died for it. And died for it they did, because these people were considered heretics, and they were punished accordingly. I might startle you, but the fact remains this, and you mark it down, in countries controlled thus far by the universal church, this doctrine is as far as they're concerned the one and only one, and they don't hesitate a minute in foreign countries to send to prison or even kill if anyone so much as mentions anything different. Now, far be it from us to say that our country will ever succumb to this, but except there is a revival in the hearts of individuals, Except there is a revival, a complacent attitude, which gives the nod to almost anything as long as it's in the name of Christianity, until there is an awakening in the hearts of people who hold that uncompromisingly that God Almighty is God Almighty alone, it very well could be. And as it was before, even with it be even worse than it was 
in the past. Now, as we said, this is factual history. This is not something I dreamed up. This is factual history. It's actually spent in different denominational books. People that couldn't care less whether you believed in ones or trinity or what you believed in, they wrote history as history revealed itself. And they wrote it and they pinned it. And it's actual fact that this transpired on that time. They actually accepted what is known as supposedly the revelation given on the day of Pentecost, which we hope to prove is false, and the statement that uh, we should disregard. The factual history in it, this is the factual history of the introduction of the Trinity doctrine into the church. A doctrine approved first by the Roman Catholic Church and passed on to the Protestant churches as generally believed and taught today. Anyone that is so invited to can verify this by their own personal research. I can give you books and up-to-date researchers if you're so on it, and I'm sure there are millions of documents that I myself don't have available that others do have, that if you were interested enough that you could search it out and see if I'm not telling you the truth. Now, what is this Trinity teaching introduced by Montanus and this our historical fact and made popular by a man called Tertullian, T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N, you find him in there too. Whether this is true or whether it's false can only be decided by comparison with Bible teaching. Now we can say, well, so-and-so said it and I believe it. Grandma believed it this way, and uh, Grandpa believed it this way, and I've been brought up in this church and this is their doctrine. We can say that all we want to. But there should be enough confidence in every individual as to their basic doctrine that they are not afraid to compare it to the scriptures of Almighty God. When we're afraid to do that, or too lukewarm in the spirit to even consider it, why then we actually have no basis to hold to whatsoever. Now surely in this study of a doctrine so important, there is need, a drastic need for that humble and teachable spirit called the Holy Ghost. Because with all the words that I can speak, and no matter how I try to clarify, regardless of it all, if we do not have the mind of God and allow the power of the Holy Ghost to prick our hearts, then we cannot ever hope to understand. And if we come with a fighting spirit, there is never any danger that you would understand. But for the most part, spirits that we run into are spirits of complacency. For the most part, it used to mean that you mention it, and that you can find people ready to debate it right away. But for the most part, what you find now is this. What difference does it make whether there's three or whether there's one? What difference does it make whether there's a Bible or not? What difference does it make whether there's a God at all or not? If we don't try to find out what he's all about, what difference does it make whether there's religion or Christianity or not? You see, that question is answered by a question. It matters much as to the truth of God. And any individual that's concerned ought to be willing to listen and then ought to be able to make for themselves a careful study of this. In order to make clear the general Trinity beliefs, some quotations from church creeds and official publications must be given. What we will quote here, and we will quote several, and there's many more that I have no access to, members of the church referred to are expected to believe in practice. Now we're going to quote some creeds that members of these individual churches are expected to believe 
always preach safe and they're expected to practice it. We first quote from a booklet called Concerning the Faith, published by the Pentecostal Assemblies of God Canada, and republished by the Assemblies of God in Formosa and adopted by the Assemblies of God in the United States of America. Quote, what do we mean by the Trinity? Now this is quote from their own book. What do we mean by the Trinity? We mean that in the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection. Now you listen carefully because this is going to have a meaning. Equal in every divine perfection. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, and the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty. So, the Father is God, still quoting from their paper, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. None is before the other, none is greater or less than another, but all three persons are co-equal in truth. Now that doesn't send you up the wall in any confusion, I don't know what that And then you ask, how can you possibly believe something so ridiculous as there's only one in the world yet? But this is from the creed of the Trinity Pentecostal Assembly of God Church. Not the only one. Now listen to one quoted from a paper called The Apostolic Faith. That's an official Pentecostal publication with a statement of what they believe. Quote, the Divine Trinity, the Godhead consists of three persons in one, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. These three are separate and distinct persons, perfectly united in one and not to be thought of in any sense as merely three names by one person, unquote. Now this is a constitution or from the constitution of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, found in chapter 2 and section 1, quote, in the Trinity of the Godhead, there be three persons, a one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, end of quote. Then from the Taiwan Promotion Missionary Fellowship Constitution, quote, Trinity, one God revealing himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, end of quote. In the Shorter Catechism, quote, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power, and equal in glory, end of quote. Catechism for New Christians by Charles Farrar of the Navigator, quote, The scriptures reveal God as ever existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, end of quote. The doctrines and discipline of the Methodist Church, as reported in 1964 Manual, page 35, quote, There is but one living true God, in unity of Godhead, and there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, end of quote. Now, coming from the Pentecostal Evangel, quote, We believe that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. End of quote. And also in the manual of the Church of the Nazarene, we find this quote. We believe that there is one God eternally existing. He is God. He as God is triune in essential being. Revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, was eternally one with the Father. Unquote. Now then, I want to review this. 
getting short. Now you listen carefully and all what you've heard. If I misquote anything in any way or have my own interpretation to it, you all do laugh. In short, the Trinity doctrine taught throughout the Christian churches is briefly as follows. Number one, the Godhead consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Did they not all proclaim that? All right, number two, there are three separate and distinct persons in the Godhead. Did not all of them proclaim that? These three are one in substance. They proclaim that. Number four, the three are equal in power. Number five, all three are uncreated. Number six, all are eternal. Number seven, none is before or after another. Number eight, none is greater or less than another. Number nine, each of these is almighty. Number ten, each one separately is God. Number eleven, the three separate gods are one God. Is that basically what we meant concerning, and this is a short resume of the Trinity doctrine in short. Now that we've had a resume of this, and I'm sure there's other places that you could find what they really believe, and all of them would say basically the same thing, let's examine this doctrine. I think it would be in order here to examine the Trinity doctrine and compare its claims with Bible teaching. Let's take first their claims of the Godhead. It is claimed by them that the Godhead consists of three separate and distinct persons. Right. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, does the Bible not warn, with careful consideration now and careful study, does the Bible not warn against this very three-person Godhead belief when it says these words? See that no man make afraid of you by philosophy and empty or vain deceit according to human tradition, and not according to Christ. For in him, Christ, one person, dwells the whole fullness of deity by the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2, 8 and 9, asserts this very clearly. For in him, one person, not three, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I think it might be in order to stop here long enough and say that God, the word God, denotes power. Without power, then there is no God. Right? All up through the ages of time, God's own have been given name because they are supposed to possess a certain amount of power. I find places in the Bible where Jesus asserted that all power is given me, him, Jesus, in heaven, and in earth, and this being the case, would not not leave the other two stripped of any power whatsoever, and they then would cease to be gods if in fact they ever were. Think on these things, because they're worthy of our consideration. Because the Bible warned us that such times as this, before it happened, and it wasn't too long in coming, since the death of the Apostles of old was somewhere around 60 A.D. or perhaps a little bit farther, and they give you just a few years, the 156, when Montana's boldly stepped up with the traditional doctrine of man and declared this to be his revelation from God. What God said through the mouth of the Apostles of old was of no consequence to him. What God spoke to the prophets of old in the Old Testament and brought the date was of no consequence to him. For he with his carnal 
clouded with the issues. Minds of man has been clouded with the human traditions, the emptiness of what human traditions really is, and not according to Christ. To assert that the Godhead consists of three separate persons when the Bible plainly asserts, now you study it and see if it does, plainly asserts that in Christ, one person dwells all, not one third of the fullness of the Godhead, but in him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead. I think this would be worthy of considering. Surely, we must, if we believe this, must be to follow empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. I ask you a fair question. Would it in the light of this, knowing that it was established by man and a tradition directly proved and connected with this man, would this then not prove to you that this then would be a doctrine of vain deceit and emptiness? As we've already seen, this human tradition was started in the year 156 A.D. by a human called Montana. A matter, historical matter of record. Don't argue with me on this, argue with the record. Because it's in there. He started this when for the first time. As far as anybody knows, it was claimed that the Holy Spirit was a person separate from Jesus, and that there were three persons in the Godhead. I want you to imagine this. That down through the centuries and ages of time, Almighty God, as far as we have a record, historically or biblically, God has always declared himself in the function of one and one alone. And doesn't it strike you amazing that all at once in 156 AD he would suddenly change and become a God of three to make one? But all down through the ages of time, choice for plain, never has it been mentioned any place else in history, any place else. Has it ever been claimed by anyone that there were three distinct separate persons in the Godhead? Until this man, whom history relates, established this doctrine, and then the church established that day at the Council of Nice adhered to this doctrine. Now what they desired to do was to stamp out any reference whatsoever of those claiming to believe in only one God. They were heretics. Heretics were to be burned, heretics were to be uh, destroyed, heretics were thrown in the lion's dens and all of this. Now we look at it a little bit and kind of wink our eye whenever we hear Jesus say that they would suffer for his name's sake. And yet suffer they did, suffer they still must be today, ridiculed and laughed and spoke at. Because people dare to believe the exact opposite of man-made ideas and opinions and churches, even though they have not one iota of proof for back those statements, historically or medically. I think it's time the Christian people was to begin to awake and be concerned. I think it's time that we become men and women enough to bravely take the Bible in hand and search out and prove to ourselves once and for all, actually, what are we serving? Are we serving a one powerful God in essence? Are we serving a man-made creation of three separate distinct persons that has to be to make them one? Now, I went to school a little bit enough to know that one and one and one doesn't make one. One and one and one makes three. So it's pretty hard for me to understand how the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost can add up to one. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But give you something to chew on and something to try to work out. Which is to be believed now? You ask yourself, 
question. What am I going to believe? What that country preacher says? It's not what I say. It's written down here, and I've done a lot of research on it. And I've searched out, and I know that there's scores of other books that I don't have available to me at all. That would back up the statement of what I've said. Now, which are you going to believe? The Bible's definite and plain statement that all the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ. Only one person. Are you going to believe, Montanus, that the Godhead consists of three separate and distinct persons? I particularly don't care what your Methodist church says. I particularly don't care what your Baptist church says. I particularly am not interested really in what the uh, Trinity uh, Assemblies of God and the churches of God have to say. I'm not interested in the creeds and catechisms of the Catholic Church and all of the other churches. What we should be interested in is not what we were brought up in. We should be interested in what does the Bible say concerning our tradition. Are they truth? Are they fact? Or are they tradition? And I invite you to make an open heart study of this in the Bible as well as in history. You'll find it there. Now since the Bible is that we believe rather than men, although 10,000 or 10 million may contradict the Bible's statement as to how many persons are in the Godhead, every man who sees the truth should make an uncompromising decision to obey Scripture, which says, Let God be true, and every man a liar. Romans 3 and 4. A million men making false statements never should in our life or any place else and cannot and must not another one true statement that God Almighty has made and set forth for us as a record to go by to regulate our lives by. Regardless of what 10 million or 10,000 men say, if it's not backed by the Word of God, it should be to us of no consequence whatsoever. Because the Bible says, let God be true. And every human tradition and every man alive. Why this human tradition should have? Of course, we know why it was because of the weakness of the church. But why it's never been accepted and man made afraid of, in spite of the Bible's plain and unmistakable warning, is a real marvel. It's a marvel in the sense that you wonder how a church established on the day of Pentecost with power and the fruits of the Spirit how the message the Apostle Peter ministered that portrayed one God and one God alone through Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Ghost moved in every heart, every man's heart and life. It is a mystery how a church that was so powerful could disintegrate in a matter of 156 years or hardly that long, about 126 years, so to speak. It's a marvel. When then by the same token, when we look around at individual lives, when we look around at individual people whose lives were one time moved by the power of the Holy Ghost, when their testimony was a fiery testimony, and when their utmost desire was always to be in the house of God and love admitted from the very being from the start of the day until the end of it, and then we see them in complacent attitudes, heaped in sin and lethargy, then we wonder. We wonder why, because the earth presents something to the world and then God himself presents it and leaves it with you and I as to what we want to find out. However, the wrong human tradition, having been accepted first by the Roman Catholic Church, which was actually, Catholic means nothing, only universal. That universal church, which included everything, was started 325 A.D. the Council of Nice, And they were started there. They adhered to this doctrine, cleaved to it, for 
Germany and pushed it forward. And then when the Protestant churches or the protesting churches, in other words, begin to make a break from this and begin to feel the power of God within their lives, begin to see the need of the blood of Christ ministered, and Jesus Christ himself, I be preached, begin to make a break from this. But they still help that the human traditions of the three gods in one. And I think historical data will prove that also. And I think that if you will listen, I did have this, and I'm not sure where it's in now, for I make a qualified statement. I had a statement made by the Pope himself, and I think it wasn't the Pope today, whatever the last Pope's name was, Pope Pius, I believe it was. But anyway, this statement made by him that he considered not those that were baptized or accepted through the Trinity formula, he considered those not heretics at all, but he considered those only departed daughters when at the appropriate time he would call for them and they would come into them. I think we have saw this in a sense, and I marvel at that, and I watch it as people seem to run into it, and the thing, the only thing that I know of that can really give me a hope is not only is the voice of that which is not right calling and people are calling after this, but the voice of Almighty God is still calling out himself formulating and setting within the body of Christ from all churches, those whom he loves and those that would follow after his divine will. Well, there's two voices in the world. Which one will we need to? Which one will we strive to be obedient to? They accepted this, Protestant churches, and it was the human nature. Now, I think you agree with this. It's human nature to try to make the Bible fit and corroborate this new Trinity doctrine. Once it was accepted, I think it would be human nature to try their best, to try to find scriptures and try to find a way that would establish this doctrine. Therefore, many strange interpretations of scripture have been put forth in an effort to support the three-person Godhead theory. Now, two passages that have been especially relied upon to show that there are three persons in the Godhead are these, respectively. 1 John 5 and 7 and Matthew 28 and 19. Now, they're not not leaning on them so heavily anymore. And I'll show you the reason why. First off, let's consider 1 John 5 and 7. Let's consider what it says. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. This would seem unmistakably to back up the doctrine of the Trinity. But I don't know whether you care to believe this or not, but I invite you to search it out. This passage of Scripture does not, does not appear in any of the ancient manuscripts until the 10th century. In other words, if you have the Bible, and I'm sure many of you do, that has this record in there, in searching out all of the ancient manuscripts from the time they have a record at all, it is not found until the 10th century. It could be found in none of the ancient manuscripts up to this time. It is now considered to have been, by Trinitarians as well as one's people, inserted by ranking Bible scholars of that day. Even Trinitarians. It's shown by that fact that the passage does not appear in either the Revised Standard or the New English Bible. And these are the works of the present time best Bible scholars. And the Trinitarians themselves, their Bible scholars all, 
will stipulate this fact. The best that they one time leaned upon heavily to conclude and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a trinity, is not and was not ever in the Bible until the 10th century. Added there, according to proof, to support the new doctrine formulated concerning the trinity. Therefore, this passage of Scripture is out. And I don't ask you to take my word for it. I'm not ripping out parts of the Bible. But I ask you to take the word of scholars, because if you don't, you're in trouble. Because these scholars are the ones who prepared this Bible for you to start with. And take, I ask you to take their word for it. This passage of Scripture is out. It does not belong in the Bible at all. Seems to have been inserted in the 10th century by those who copied the ancient manuscripts of the Bible in order to give support to the Trinity doctrine. At that time, the only church doctrine allowed regarding the Godhead. There wasn't any more in the 10th century allowed regarding it. They needed to prove it. Now then, let's look at that authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples or teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Our Holy Spirit, however you want to insert. Now then, this has commonly been the Trinitarian's mode and method of baptism, and many of them say, I'll take what Jesus wrote rather than what Peter wrote, or Peter said. And it's been presented to you more times than one. Jesus never wrote a line. Not in return for our life, he didn't write this. Matthew wrote it, and Matthew was standing right there when Peter got up and told how they needed to be baptized. And if there was any contrary or any contradiction, Not three, 